parts of eastern Kentucky have been devastated by deadly flooding. Many residents say they're just relieved to be alive. My sister-in-law lost her home, and my niece lost hers. Other than that, we're all safe and everything. It's Monday, August 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson has been suspended for six games following allegations of sexual misconduct. The suspension decision is provoking criticism. What it didn't seem to account for was just the volume and the pattern of behavior. You'll learn about the climate investments and actions in the Inflation Reduction Act. And as of today, catfish noodling is legal in Louisiana. It's 401. Now, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Kentuckians are leaning on first responders and each other to get through the aftermath of devastating floods that have killed at least 35 people. Member station WKUS Stan Gold has this update on the recovery efforts. Kentucky's Governor Andy Bashir says the death toll number is expected to rise in the days and weeks to come. More rain is falling today and high wind is expected. Governor Bashir says this is just part of a new set of weather woes. You think about how saturated the ground has been. It could knock over poles. It could knock over trees. Uh, so people need to be careful. And it's even going to get tougher. When the rain stops, it's going to get really hot. This poses a problem as thousands are still without power and clean drinking water is in short supply. The National Weather Service in Jackson, Kentucky is calling for heat indexes of near 100 degrees for the latter half of this week. The governor is working on developing cooling stations for people working outside. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. NFL star quarterback Deshaun Watson has been suspended the first six games of the upcoming regular season. A disciplinary officer suspended Watson today after an investigation to accusations of sexual misconduct made by more than two dozen women. Here's NPR's Tom Goldman. The NFL and its players union appointed former federal judge Sue Robinson to rule in the Deshaun Watson case. 24 women had filed civil suits accusing Watson of sexual misconduct during massage sessions when he played for the Houston Texans. Earlier this year, Houston traded Watson to the Cleveland Browns. His six-game ban falls short of what the NFL reportedly wanted, at least a year-long suspension. The league and the players union have three days to appeal, though the union said before the ruling it would not appeal. Watson has settled with all but one of the women who had sued. He says he's innocent, and this year two grand juries decided not to charge him with any crimes. Tom Goldman, NPR News. The White House says a potential visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan is no reason for recent threats by the Chinese government. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Taiwan is a self-governing democratic island that Beijing considers to be part of its territory. The Chinese government has repeatedly warned that a visit by Pelosi would be considered a gross interference in Beijing's internal affairs. The Biden administration says there's no reason for China to turn a potential visit that's consistent with longstanding U.S policy into some sort of crisis or conflict or use it as a pretext for further military escalation in and around the Taiwan Strait. NPR's Windsor Johnson reporting. Precious Ukrainian grain is on its way to Lebanon and other countries facing food shortages made worse by Russia's war with Ukraine. Today, the first shipment left the southern Ukrainian port of Odessa. The Dow closes down 46 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston.
It was a rush to the finish, and it went into overtime. The Massachusetts legislature's two-year session is over. Lawmakers blew past a midnight deadline and worked until around 10 this morning. They sent legislation to the governor to require insurance companies to cover annual mental health exams and to provide more help for marijuana businesses owned by people of color. They failed to act on a proposal to send $250 checks to middle-income residents to provide inflation relief. Lawmakers said they were not sure the state could afford the payments. That's because taxpayers are likely to get a separate tax rebate this year as a result of the state's large budget surplus. Celtics legend Bill Russell sits at the top of Boston's Mount Rushmore. That's the assessment of Boston Globe sports columnist Dan Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy tells WBUR's Radio Boston that Russell was the ultimate team player for the Celtics in the 1950s and 60s. They taught you how to win subjugating your ego, how to put team above self. Bill Russell was the embodiment of this because he didn't need the ball. He didn't care about touches, wasn't a scoring champion. He was a winner. He would do what it took to win. Russell won 11 NBA championships with the Celtics, was the league's most valuable player five times, and won an Olympic gold medal with Team USA Basketball. He is enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. Russell died yesterday at the age of 88. A series of shutdowns on part of the MBTA red line start tonight to accommodate track upgrades. The T is suspending train service between JFK, UMass, and Braintree stations four nights a week, Monday through Thursday, for the next two weeks. That stretch will shut down on those nights at 9 p.m. until the end of service for the evening. Shuttle buses will be running. Police and firefighters will be fanned out in the neighborhoods of Boston for the rest of today and tomorrow afternoon and evening. It's part of the 35th annual celebration known as National Night Out. The event's designed to strengthen relationships between neighbors and police. It features food, free kids' activities, entertainment, and demonstrations. It is 79 degrees in Boston. Some clouds around tonight, lows in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start, then partly sunny, a chance of showers and highs in the low 90s. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. This week, Senate Democrats could pass the most ambitious climate legislation in a generation. It's all within a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And it's arrived as the country is a map of deadly floods, fires, and heat advisories. This package includes cleanup incentives for power plants, expansion of clean energy, and investments in electric vehicles and climate-friendly farming practices. It also has some major concessions to the fossil fuel industry. Those were brokered by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, whose vote is key to passing the bill. So, are the climate provisions enough to balance out the expansion of drilling and pipelines? Manish Bapna is president and CEO of the National Resources Defense Council. Welcome to All Things Considered. Great to be here, Ari. This bill is less ambitious than your organization had been pushing for. So, how are you feeling about it? Well, it is less ambitious than we hoped, but it contains by far the strongest climate action ever taken in American history, full stop. It will meet a 40% reduction in emissions in 2030, and that's a very significant step towards meeting President Biden's 50 to 52% goal that he set forth about a year and a half ago. 
And when you weigh that against the fossil fuel provisions that, for example, require the federal government to sell leases for drilling on federal lands and waters, how do they compare? If you look at the positive provisions in the bill, whether it is around clean electricity, electric vehicles, decarbonizing heavy industry, they're at least 10 to 1 times greater than the emissions that would be produced from oil and gas leasing or some of the public support for dirty energy or biofuels. I know that there are many different provisions in this bill, but when you look at the different clean energy incentives and programs, what do you think will make the biggest single impact? There are three or four that really stand out. Probably the most important are the programs that will help households and businesses install new clean electricity like wind and solar. They'll provide tax credits that lower the cost of those projects. Second, I think we see a lot of support for electric vehicles that will help people buy new and used plug-in or fuel cell electric vehicles. We also see significant support for heavy industry manufacturing, helping cement, steel, aluminum implement more transformational technologies to decarbonize those plants. Finally, we actually see quite a bit of money for agriculture and forestry conservation that will help store carbon in our lands and in our forests. As you say, a lot of this comes in the form of tax credits or incentives, which are not mandates, not requirements. What are the chances that companies don't take advantage of these incentives, that individuals don't claim these tax credits and the goal is not met? These are very robust, long-term tax credits where industry has been strongly advocating for their inclusion in such a bill. So we saw this whirlwind change from a deal that wasn't going to happen to a deal that was going to happen in no small part because industry stepped up about the importance of these tax credits. So I think there's very strong confidence that these tax credits will be used at scale. Okay, so you've talked about the goal of reducing carbon emissions 40% compared to 2005 levels by the end of this decade. How does this package fit into the larger goal of keeping global temperatures from increasing more than two degrees Celsius, beyond which we're told absolute cataclysms would occur? Well, the United States is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient for solving the global climate problem. The United States needs to do its fair share, which is at least a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. This bill will take the United States from 30% without the bill, 30% less emissions in 2030, to 40% below. The United States still needs to take additional actions to get to 50%. But with a credible pathway, the United States can lean in and help ensure that other major emitters, China, the European Union, India, do their fair share. But without this bill, the U.S. doesn't have the credibility to do so. And that's why this bill is so critical to unlocking greater global ambition on climate. I know you've been working on this for a very long time. Can you just describe what it was like for you personally to go from a couple of weeks ago reporting that the bill was dead, that the deal wasn't going anywhere, to this moment where it looks like Congress might pass and the president might sign the most ambitious climate legislation in a generation? About a week ago, I was very, very angry. I felt we let a really important opportunity slip through the cracks. But if we can get this enacted, it is going to reinvigorate jobs, growth, innovation. 
reducing the deficit, fighting inflation, improving energy security in a way that will actually significantly reduce emissions. It's not done by any stretch of the imagination, but we're in a very different place today than we were five, six days ago. You're still not counting chickens, huh? Not until the bill is signed. Manish Bapna is president and CEO of the National Resources Defense Council. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ari. To Whitesburg, Kentucky now, where people are still reeling from the devastating flash floods that have killed at least 35 people in the state. Joining me now is Colin Foltz. He is the owner of Kentucky Mist Distillery in Whitesburg. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being with us. Can I just first ask you, how are you holding up? Well, it's pretty devastating the first day when you walk and and see that uh, the distillery was flooded. You know that was pretty bad. Yeah. And then and then you just kind of kick into uh, cleaning and getting it back to where it needs to be. Well, I know on Friday you told us that there was just like mud everywhere in the distillery. How are things looking right now? So since Friday we've worked through the weekend and everything, and you know like the first we're all cleaning of getting the mud out is the is the most important and then we'll just go from there but it will probably be another week of doing that and we've not even started on the basement yet oh god what does the basement look like at this point oh man it just looks it's just devastating there's probably two inches of mud in the top part of the distillery and there's probably more like eight inches of mud in the uh in the basement what about power do you have problems with electricity at this point Okay, so the, the distillery is in Whitesburg, so the town has power, and I live about 10 minutes outside of town, and we only got power back last night. But a lot of places still don't have power, and nobody really has water yet. In Whitesburg, we have a little bit of water, but we're running real short. So are you mainly drinking out of bottles at this point? Anything that we drink comes from a bottle, yep. Okay. But is there enough water to clean the mud out of your distillery? Right now, what we have, we have enough to get to get it out because we actually have a well that we can use from. I see. So we're, we're actually using out of that for the moment. And what about internet access? No internet. No internet at all. Okay. No internet. So we don't know what's happened, if anybody even knows what happened here or so, like, my daughter lives about three hours away, so my whole family, we can't call and text each other, but we can all reach her. So, the whole family texts and checks in with her Oh, because it don't go, it won't go straight from place to place here, you know? I see. Your daughter is now the hub for the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she is. And how is the rest of your family doing? Well, uh, my sister-in-law lost her home, and... Uh, oh. My niece uh, lost hers, but, you know, other than that, we're all safe and everything. Where are your sister-in-law and your niece staying then at the moment? Uh, with family. Okay. So everybody just has to stay. Like, uh, we have a friend coming to her house. We have, like, a pool house, and they'll come there and stay tonight. And then uh, people just taking in everybody that has lost everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you gotten any assistance from the state or federal government at this point? We've not saw FEMA at all. Really? Not saw FEMA at all. The distillery is right next door to the health department for Kentucky, and Kentucky has sent a catastrophic response team 
and they have a trailer set up here and they're working at the health department to try to get that reestablished so that they'll have what they need there. But as far as everything else, like people's out cleaning up their roads with their own personal equipment and stuff, trying so we can get out to, to get to where we need. And then last night it flooded again on top of what we already had. So some of it had been cleaned up and then it washed right back out again yesterday. How long do you think it'll be before you can get your distillery back in shape to open? I would hope within a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah, I would think. With that, I, I hope to have it back running within two weeks would be my goal. Well, I wish you the best of luck, Colin. Colin Fultz is the owner of Kentucky Mist Distillery in Whitesburg, Kentucky. I hope you and your family stay very safe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is the U.S. entering a recession? Well, that's a question economists can debate, but for the time being, most people on Wikipedia can't. You see, last week, a bunch of news came in about GDP going down and interest rates going up, which led to a spike in a different kind of interest. Lots of people were suddenly interested in editing the Wikipedia page on recessions. Experienced editors pressed pause on the free-for-all. They said newer users weren't citing sources or coming to consensus on a separate discussion page. They also said political bias was creeping in. Now, the White House does not use Wikipedia to determine whether the economy is in recession. As far as we know, that declaration comes from a, quote, official recession scorekeeper in the National Bureau of Economic Research. And the White House believes when you combine inflation with other data like consumer spending and job growth, we are not in a recession, at least not just yet. If you disagree, well, the freeze on the Wikipedia page is scheduled to lift Wednesday. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on All Things Considered, the success so far of a Vision Zero plan in Hoboken. In business news, a Waltham-based life sciences company is selling off part of its business. Perkin Elmer announced today it's selling its applied food and enterprise services business to an investment firm for nearly $2.5 billion. The company says it's doing so to focus on its work developing life science therapies and diagnostics. Shares in Perkin Elmer rose 5% in trading today after the sale was announced. On Wall Street, the Dow finished the day down 46 points at 32,798. The Nasdaq closed down 21 points at 12,368. The S&P dropped 11 points to close at 41.18. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Gloucester Stage with Grand Horizons. Life turns upside down in this family stage comedy by Bess Wool, July 29th to August 21st. Tickets at GloucesterStage.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. It is 80 degrees in Boston. Some isolated sprinkles tonight, lows dropping to the upper 60s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start, then partly sunny. A chance of some showers with isolated thunderstorms possible in the afternoon. Tuesday's highs in the low 90s. Looking ahead to Wednesday, sunshine, highs in the mid 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What if you could get traffic fatalities down to zero? Well, the city of Hoboken, New Jersey, just across the river from New York City, seems to have done it. Nobody there has died from a collision with a car in four years. Ryan Sharp is here to explain how they made that happen. He is Hoboken Director of Transportation and Parking. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, almost 43,000 people in the U.S. died in motor vehicle traffic crashes last year. That is the highest number since 2005. So while numbers all over the country were going up, how did Hoboken get the number to zero? Well, that's a great question. Hoboken has been playing a long game when it comes to traffic safety for a number of years, uh, dating back before COVID, and playing the long game through uh, incremental changes and improvements over a series of years. So you talk about incremental changes and improvements. Like if you and I were going for a walk through downtown Hoboken, what are some of the specific things we would see that have made a difference? Well, uh, a lot of the things that Hoboken has been doing to improve traffic safety are low cost, they're quick implementation, but they're also high impact. So we know through our our crash data that about 88% of crashes happen at intersections. So we have focused on trying to reduce conflicts at, at our intersections, especially on our high crash corridors. So things like trying to improve sight lines at corners, by doing what we call daylighting. So that can be installing something as as simple as as what we call a vertical delineator post or a flexible bollard. These posts get installed within 25 feet of crosswalks and they physically restrict cars from parking right up against a crosswalk. So it's not a blind corner. If you're going to take a turn, somebody's going to see you. If you're going to cross the street, you can spot the cars that are coming. That's correct. It's a very simple, cost-effective thing you can do, um, but it has a big impact. Uh, One thing that you won't see is something called a leading pedestrian interval. And basically what that means is uh, we've programmed our traffic signals to give pedestrians a few second uh, head start when they get into the crosswalk during their pedestrian phase without having to worry about turning vehicles. Oh, yeah, I've seen that here in D.C. too. The walk light turns on before the green light goes. Your plan seems to de-emphasize car ownership and create space for pedestrians and cyclists. How often do you hear from drivers who feel like you're squeezing them out and what do you tell them? Well, the goal of the Vision Zero program is to focus on safety for all modes of transportation. Uh, What we know, though, through our crash data is that pedestrians and cyclists in in particular are the most vulnerable users of the streets in Hoboken. And that's pretty much the same for every city in the country. And so culturally, people elevate pedestrian safety in Hoboken at the top of the hierarchy. So even if you commute to work uh, by car, at some point, you're going to be a pedestrian in Hoboken. So we try to not pit any one mode against each other as much as possible. 
there are a lot of cities that have implemented Vision Zero programs to reduce traffic fatalities. But in places like Washington, D.C., deaths have actually increased since that goal was announced. What makes Hoboken different? Well, it's hard to speculate what's working well or not working well in other cities. But in Hoboken, uh, an incremental approach over several years that includes uh, more than just engineering, but also education and uh, a focus on changing the culture. The simple improvements like daylighting or leading pedestrian intervals or adding curb extensions, these things are still in place and they've been having a positive impact and people have gotten used to seeing these things in town and they ask for more. So it's continuing to build off its own success. And, you know, frankly, we've been fortunate so far not to have a setback, but that can happen at any time, right? We're well aware that it's happened in other cities. So we're continuing to push ahead with new initiatives again and again to try to continue to keep that progress in place. That is Ryan Sharp, Hoboken's Director of Transportation and Parking. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Star Trek fans are mourning the the death of Nichelle Nichols. She played Lieutenant Uhura on TV and films, and in the 1960s, she was one of the first black women starring on a TV show. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has this remembrance of a groundbreaking role model. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Nichelle Nichols boldly went where few black actresses on TV had gone before when she played Lieutenant Nayota Uhura, Chief Communications Officer of the Starship USS Enterprise. Strong interference on subspace, Captain. Planet must be a natural radio source. Uhura traveled through the 23rd century communicating with aliens and exploring new planets, new civilizations. As Earthlings were struggling with racial issues in 1968, Uhura shared one of the first on-screen interracial kisses with Captain James T. Kirk. I am not afraid. In a Star Trek special on the Smithsonian Channel in 2016, Nichols said that kissing scene shouldn't have been shocking. It's just two people like my grandmother and grandfather. Grandpa was white and grandma was black. (laughs) Nichols' death has stirred reaction from Hollywood to the White House. Actor William Shatner, who played Star Trek's Captain Kirk, praised his co-star as a beautiful woman who played an admirable character that did so much for redefining social issues. George Takei, who played helmsman Hikaru Sulu on the series, mourned his dear friend. We lived long and prospered together, he tweeted. President Joe Biden praised Nichols as a trailblazer who, quote, redefined what is possible for black Americans and women. Nichols sometimes sang on Star Trek. In fact, she began her career in Chicago, singing and dancing on stage. She modeled for Ebony magazine and went on tour as a singer for the Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton bands. To me, the highlight of my life was to star on Broadway. Nichols told NPR in 2011 that during the first season of Star Trek, she wanted to quit to pursue her dreams on Broadway. She handed her resignation letter to Gene Roddenberry, the show's creator. He was very upset about it, and he said, take the weekend and think about what I am trying to achieve here, Nichelle. You are an integral part and very important to it. That weekend, she met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a fan. She told him she was leaving the show. I think I said something like, Dr. King, I wish I could be out there marching with you. He said, no, 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 
no, you don't understand. We don't need you to march. You are marching. You are reflecting what we are fighting for. King convinced her to stay on board Star Trek, and she did through the original 1960s series and six subsequent films. Eventually, Lieutenant Uhura became Starship Commander Uhura. Roger, Old City Station at 2200 hours. All is well. In real life, Nichols helped convince women and people of color to become astronauts. Here's her 1977 NASA recruitment video. Now there's a 20th century enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. After Nichols' death, the space program sent out a communication. She inspired generations, NASA tweeted, to reach for the stars. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and ahead on All Things Considered, the United Nations kicked off a conference on the status of a 50-year treaty on nuclear nonproliferation as crises fester in the Middle East, the Korean Peninsula, and Ukraine. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. It is 80 degrees in Boston. Some isolated sprinkles tonight. Lows dropping to the upper 60s tomorrow. Some clouds to start, then partly sunny. A chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. Highs in the low 90s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And the Museum of Science. Discover something new each time you visit. Summertime is limited, though your experiences at the Museum of Science are not. Tickets at mos.org. A young battalion commander in the Ukrainian military is on a mission to retake the city of Kherson. The morale of his troops weighs heavily on his mind. When we lost some guys, everybody, including me, felt not very well. And then that's make my guys anger and to provide a good revenge for them. Preparing for a key battle in the war for Ukraine tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Kentucky's governor says the death toll is expected to rise further after devastating floods swept through eastern Kentucky, killing at least 35 people last week, and more are still unaccounted for. More rain is also falling today, and high winds are expected as first responders fan across the region looking for any signs of survivors. Gwen Johnson is volunteering at a community center in eastern Kentucky. She says... Many folks lost everything in the floodwaters, and one of the biggest needs right now, besides water, is portable toilets and showers. We've called for mobile shower units and hand-washing stations and porta-potties, but so far we've got uh, none of that. Um, And so here at the community center, we've been cooking and cleaning up with bottled water and trying to feed folks out of here. This is the second disaster to hit Kentucky since December when a swarm of deadly tornadoes ravaged western Kentucky. The United Nations has kicked off a long-awaited meeting to review the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty while issuing a dire warning. We get that from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. 
UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he fears the risks of nuclear proliferation are growing as conflicts fester from the Middle East to the Korean Peninsula and with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The clouds that parted following the end of the Cold War are gathering once more. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflict. Secretary of State Antony Blinken accuses Russia of nuclear saber-rattling, and he's urging Iran to get back into a 2015 nuclear deal. Blinken says the U.S. is ready to work with countries, including China, to reduce nuclear risks. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The two-year formal session of the Massachusetts state legislature is over. Lawmakers worked until the 10 a.m. hour this morning, even though the session was supposed to end at midnight last night. During the all-night talks, the legislature approved a bill to allow sports gambling in Massachusetts. Wagers on Massachusetts college teams would be prohibited unless the teams are part of a national tournament. That bill now heads to Governor Baker's desk. One of the legislature's last acts this session, sending Governor Charlie Baker a mental health bill. It's designed to improve access to treatment. WBURC Brown reports the legislation is focused on making sure mental health care is treated the same as other aspects of health care. This bill puts some teeth into the enforcement at the Division of Insurance. Health insurance plans are supposed to cover mental health services, just like uh, you would uh, get a physical checkup. But there hasn't been uh, a lot of enforcement of that. The bill stipulates that health insurers must cover an annual mental health exam. There's a roadblock in the effort to reform the way Massachusetts recoups health care costs associated with Medicaid. The Mass Health Program files claims against the estates of members who've died if those estates are being handled in probate court. The state legislature adjourned today without acting on a bill that would limit Mass Health to recovering only the costs of long-term care. A separate proposal to do the same thing stalled when lawmakers chose not to act on an economic development bill. That means proposed reforms will likely be delayed. Under legislative rules, any policy matters considered between now and the next session in January can be sidetracked by the objection of just one lawmaker. Workers at a Starbucks in Worcester are the latest to go on strike indefinitely. Today's strike is the second one in the state the coffee chain is facing. The work stoppage coincides with one-day pickets Starbucks workers held today at three other Massachusetts stores. WBUR's Josie Guarino says workers who voted to unionize are complaining of unfair labor practices. Starbucks workers call it a day of collective action. This group from the Brookline Starbucks picketed outside Boston's National Labor Relations Board, while baristas in Worcester picketed outside a store on East Central Street. Bailey Fulton has been with Starbucks for 16 years. She says the majority of workers at her store decided to unionize, then had their hours cut. I'm available maybe 35 hours. Other partners are available 40 hours. We're getting 16 hours a week, 22 hours a week. We can't pay our rent on hours like that. Starbucks released a statement saying it respects its workers' right to engage in any legally protected activity or protest without retaliation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. 
It is 80 degrees in Boston. Some sprinkles tonight, lows in the upper 60s. Tomorrow becoming partly sunny, a chance of some showers with isolated thunderstorms in the afternoon. Highs tomorrow in the low 90s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The NFL is now reviewing next steps for Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson, whose saga of sexual misconduct allegations has seemed to follow no previous playbook. Even amid scandal earlier this year, he became the first player to land a $230 million guaranteed contract. And today, he became the first to face a six-game suspension under a new disciplinary process. 24 women have now sued Watson. All but one of those lawsuits have been settled out of court. Two grand juries declined to indict Watson on criminal charges. And now, fans and analysts alike are wondering if this suspension recommendation is enough. I talked about it earlier with Lindsey Jones, senior NFL editor for The Ringer, starting with a recap of the accusations. So... Over the course of more than a year, um, more than two dozen women um, filed civil lawsuits in which they described various forms of sexual misconduct that they experienced in massage appointments. Um, So what we've learned really dating back to the spring of 2020 is that Deshaun Watson would seek out women on Instagram to perform massages on him. And many of those appointments um, ended up having some sort of sexual component. Um, And many of these women in these lawsuits said that that sexual conduct was unwanted. What has Watson said about these allegations so far? He's said very little. He's had a couple of media availabilities since he was traded to the Browns back in March. He really hasn't really had any sort of explanation, nor has he really expressed any sort of contrition or remorse or really any understanding of why these cases were brought in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has yet to address um, the media or really provide any sort of statement since the the disciplinary decision was reached on Monday. Okay, well, as we have said, he is now facing a six-game suspension. And I'm curious, what are you hearing from people, Lindsay, as to whether that punishment is sufficient, given the gravity of what's being alleged here? Yeah, so my initial reading when I saw that it was six games was that it was a very strict interpretation of the NFL's personal conduct policy, which has a six-game suspension baseline for uh, violations of the policy that are, um, you know, kind of sexual in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look at the totality of how many complaints were brought against him in civil court, even though most of them now have been settled, um, what it didn't seem to account for was just the volume and the the pattern of behavior. And so I think people who are wondering why is it only six games? Is that out of line with other suspensions? You know, with Calvin Ridley from the Atlanta Falcons, who's been been suspended for the entire 2022 season for betting on a couple of games while he was out mm-hmm. um, with, you know, 
dozens of allegations of sexual misconduct, it doesn't really line up. And then there are other people, certainly uh, on Watson's side and Watson's camp, that think six games is too severe, that you know, he was not criminally charged. He never actually faced any sort of charges that why would he be suspended six games? Well, we should note that this is the NFL's first case to be heard by Sue Robinson, the NFL and NFL Players Association's disciplinary officer, instead of by league commissioner Roger Goodell. What is the significance of that piece of all this? I mean, given the fact that the NFL has been accused of uneven discipline for its players over the years, as you pointed out earlier. Yeah, so you're exactly right. In in 2020, when the NFL and the NFL Players Association agreed on a new collective bargaining agreement, one of the significant changes was making it that there would be a, a neutral arbiter who would decide discipline. Ultimately, Roger Goodell has the final say because the league um, could, could appeal. Um, this was all new. There was no precedent for how Judge Robinson would would issue her ruling. And I think right now we're looking at this situation where what happens next? If the NFL does decide to appeal this and bring this back to Roger Goodell's desk, it's potentially monumental for precedent setting and what it will mean for future disciplinary decisions for cases big and small. That is Lindsay Jones, senior NFL editor for The Ringer. Thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. The fate of a nuclear-armed world was the subject of the United Nations today. North Korea is poised for another nuclear test. Iran has not agreed to rejoin the deal that curbed its nuclear program. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine has raised that risk of nuclear confrontation. It's against this backdrop that the UN opened a month-long meeting about the status of the 50-year-old Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres opened the conference with a dire warning. Today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. He pointed to crises that are, as he put it, festering in the Middle East and the Korean Peninsula, as well as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The clouds that parted following the end of the Cold War are gathering once more. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflicts. Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to New York to show that the U.S. is ready to work with countries to strengthen the NPT, a treaty meant to promote disarmament and nuclear nonproliferation. There is no question that the NPT has made the world safer. But there's also no doubt that it's under increasing strength. And so we come together at a critical moment. Russian President Vladimir Putin, in a written message to the conference, said there would be no winners in a nuclear war, and he said no such war should be started. Secretary Blinken says Russia is setting a bad example. When the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia gave Ukraine security assurances to encourage it to give up the Soviet nuclear weapons that were based in Ukraine. Blinken says Russia broke that deal by invading Ukraine. What message does this send to any country around the world? that may think that it needs to have nuclear weapons to protect, to defend, to deter uh, aggression against its sovereignty and independence. The worst possible message. Another major topic is Iran's nuclear program. Germany's foreign minister, Annabella Baerbock, is urging Iran to get back into a 2015 agreement that capped Iran's nuclear program in exchange for financial relief. A fair deal is on the table. 
We should seize this opportunity as long as it still is possible. But Iran needs to cooperate with inspectors, says Rafael Mariano Grossi, the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency. We need to have the access that is commensurate with the breadth and depth of that nuclear program. It can be done. Let's do it. Iran is a member of the treaty. Other suspected or known nuclear powers are not, including Israel, India, and Pakistan. North Korea pulled out, and Grossi says he wants inspectors to get back there soon. Experts will spend August in New York looking at ways to revitalize the treaty. Blinken says the U.S. has a 60-person team dedicated to that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And now to Louisiana, where some people like to fish by sticking their arms into murky water, feeling around for catfish, and grabbing one by the mouth. It's called noodling, and a new law legalizing it goes into effect today. Kezia Sitiawan of member station WWNO in New Orleans takes us to a lake to learn how it's done. <laughs> on a scorching July day on Louisiana's Caney Lake, two friends are waist deep in the shallow water. Another on a small motorboat. <laughs> One of them, Eli Spangler, wears snorkeling goggles. He dives under and sticks his hand in an old tire, grabbing at blue catfish with his bare hands. Almost. I almost had him, bro. No catch this time. One of his buddies, John Robert Blake, says it's all about technique. You put one finger behind his gill, and that'll open his mouth up, and then just lock your fingers like this. And then when you get them locked, do the same thing to the other side, and he ain't going nowhere. Eli catches his breath, secures the goggles on his face, and dives back in the water. John Robert has the net ready. His brother, Rhett, holds the boat to make sure it doesn't float off too far away. What I'm talking about, baby! This is the first time Eli has caught a catfish with his bare hands. He usually just acts as support. We're always doing this together. I just have never grabbed one before. A couple of years ago, these guys taught another friend how to noodle. He then taught his dad, who happened to be a state representative, Jack McFarland. And I think part of it initially was just that, man, I can't let my son show me up. I got to do this. At the time, none of that was legal. So this year, McFarland introduced a bill to change that. So, look, let's just go ahead and define it as legal, and everyone can enjoy the sport. That makes Louisiana the 17th state to legalize noodling. Most are in the South. Back at Caney Lake, Eli Spangler says that they're happy McFarland pushed for its legalization. I'm sure that he just felt like it was the right thing to do. They've been noodling for over five years now, sinking their own plywood boxes and even a bathtub to encourage catfish to spawn. Eli is pretty excited he finally caught one today. But when I went in there that first time today and just reached my arm in there and came up with a catfish, it was just like, it was like it all paid off. It was like everything that I thought thought it was going to be, it was. The Blake brothers say once you try it out, you'll be hooked. If you had never done it before, you need to get in with some people and do it. You need to go because it is an experience of a lifetime. It is fun. It is. It is very fun. You want to do it twice if you do it once. 
I guarantee you. It's addicting. I would say it's addicting. Of course, we are a little crazy. We like to do crazy things. John Roberts says it's been a good haul today at Candy Lake this late into the season, with a total of four catfish clocking in at almost 26 pounds, better than previous outings. The last two times I've been, I had caught a fish, so we already do it two times better than what I've been doing. And there's a payoff, fried catfish tonight. Yeah, we'll eat it. While now it's the end of the season, with noodling now legal in the state, Brett, John Robert, and Eli can't wait for next year. For NPR News, I'm Kezia Satyawan in Chatham, Louisiana. Three of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump face primary challengers tomorrow. One is in Michigan, two are in Washington state. More tomorrow on Morning Edition. Just turn your radio on or ask your smart speaker to play your member station. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.48 and ahead on All Things Considered, the artist Ai Weiwei discusses his memoir, 1,000 Years of Joys and Sorrows. That and much more coming up on All Things Considered. Coming to WBUR City Space, Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor. Then on Tuesday, August 16th, a primary debate with the Democratic candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor. For free in-person and virtual tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It is 80 degrees in Boston, lows in the upper 60s tonight, a chance of some sprinkles. Tomorrow, becoming partly sunny, a chance of some Showers and isolated thunderstorms. Highs in the low 90s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. When traveling around Massachusetts, discover fresh farm stands, delicious farm-to-table restaurants, and popular farmers markets. Learn the best places to find the best food at eatlikealocalinma.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In West Texas, if you want to drill, you are going to need more than just a permit. If you came to me and said, Mike, here's $100 million, go get a third rig, I can't get the pipe, I can't get the people to do the work. I'm Kai Rizdahl, the drilling industry unearthed. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Over the decades, Ai Weiwei has become one of the most influential artists and activists of our time, which is why the Chinese government has long fixed its gaze on him. In 2011, Chinese authorities secretly detained Ai Weiwei. And while in detention, the artist thought often about his father, how incomplete his understanding of his father was, and how much he wanted to avoid that same disconnect with his own son. So Ai Weiwei decided to set down his thoughts and memories in his book, 1,000 Years of Joys and Sorrows. 
It's a story passed down through fathers, a work that ponders freedom of expression, how art can move ideas, and the beauty that can emerge from life's ugliest struggles. His own father, Ai Ching, was a famous poet who was branded as a so-called rightist during the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong. When we spoke last fall, I began by asking Ai Weiwei why his thoughts kept wandering to his father while he was in detention. I realized I don't really know him because I never really directly asked him a single question about his past, you know, going through all those difficulties and the struggles. Until I was arrested, I realized I may have the same kind of relation with my son. That time he was just over two years old, and the authority told me, after 10 or 12 years, uh, you finish your sentence, and your son certainly will not even know your, mm. his father. Well, you were eventually released, but may I ask, when you think back, when you were a boy, did you understand at the time why your father was sent there? Did you have a deep sense as a child that the Chinese government was basically punishing your father for his ideas? No way to understand. Nobody even understand. At that time, we are totally like uh, dropped into water. You got totally wet. Mm. And uh, there's no way to have another choice or another possibility. The whole nation was under this uh, very heavy political uh, class struggle. Not only my father being punished, but over half a million of intellectuals being punished, their writers, translators, or educators, you know. Between you and your father growing up, how would you characterize your relationship with him? Would you have described the two of you as close back then? Um, no, I, I never even think we, we are close. Also, I never see any family have a close relationship during that period. Mm -hmm. Love is never a word to be mentioned in any family. The love only belongs to the party and uh, the chairman Mao, the party's leader. Everybody is uh, so scared. Yeah. Even all those parents give the their children, newly born children, the name is love the country or love the party. Names that would make the Chinese Communist Party happy. Whole generation have maybe half of the population would have the same kind of name. You know, there is so much in this book that reflects how your life later as an artist inside the Chinese communist system, how that life echoed so much of your own father's life, not just your time in detention, but the constant monitoring you faced every day when you lived in China. And I want to ask you, how do you think that constant surveillance by the Chinese government, that constant observation, helped you relate to your father better? Well, modern surveillance is uh, because of the technology, of course, I have been under surveillance, 25 cameras around my studio, people following me, hiding behind bushes, take photos to see who I meet. And, uh, you know, all those kind of ridiculous right. 
I, I start to understand that generation, how difficult for them. Today, I have internet. I can easily have my voice being heard. But in that time, they cannot even whisper to their loved ones about what's in their mind. Well, as I listen to you talk about how much of an adversary the Chinese government has played in your life, in your father's life, you know, it made me wonder, because yes, the Chinese government has played a destructive role in your life, but also in, in a way the Chinese government has played a strangely creative role too. Like, I'm curious, where do you think Ai Weiwei, the artist, would be without the Chinese government being such an oppositional force in your life, driving you to understand what is important to you, what to fight for, what to stand up against? Do you think you could be the same artist without the Chinese government? No way. No way, it's not possible. Once this uh, interrogator, he already interrogated me for over a year, he asked me very sincerely, without us, you can never be so famous. I said, mm -hmm. yes, I take a real enemy to make a, a soldier. And also, I'm grateful I can really exercise my individual uh, struggle and uh, freedom of speech. So yes. I have something to say about it. Without that struggle, you wouldn't have the same things to say. Without struggle, we don't have a life. Life is about the struggle. Well, as we mentioned this book, it is in large part a written record for your son, Ai Lao, so that Ai Lao can better understand who his father is. And, you know, you write at one point of your own father, you say, quote, Although he never tried to influence my decisions and never asked anything of me, like a star in the sky or a tree in the field, he was always there as a compass point. And in a quiet and mysterious way, he helped me to navigate in a direction all my own. Let me ask you, how much do you want a similar relationship with Ailao? I want him to recognize he does have a father. And uh, that person has its own principle. But I want to be there so he can see me is there. And when you think about your own struggles, what do you want most for Ailao's life? I want him to have uh, independent thinking and uh, to a healthy life. I would say that's a healthy life. That's exactly what my parents say they want for me. <laughs> Ai Weiwei, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Ai Weiwei said thank you, and he complimented me on my Mandarin. His book is called 1,000 Years of Joys and Sorrows. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. 
Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at USPS.com delivering. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A ship full of corn left Odessa today, the first commercial vessel to leave the Ukrainian port city in months. This is a fantastic sign, an important signal that the food that is so much needed and that is stuck in Ukraine can come out. It's Monday, August 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Primary elections tomorrow will affect the future of reproductive rights in states including Kansas. In 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that abortion was a protected right under the state constitution. Uh, So now voters will decide whether to reverse that decision. Also, you'll hear about today's sentencing of the first insurrection defendant to be convicted by a jury. And you'll get a conversation about how a return of extended stay hotels could help with housing market dysfunction. It's 501 First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says China is preparing to retaliate if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi travels to Taiwan. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on U.S. efforts to de-escalate tensions between the two superpowers. The White House is working hard to prevent tensions with China from spiraling into a dangerous situation. The National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says there is no reason for Beijing to turn a potential visit by the speaker into some sort of crisis or conflict. China appears to be positioning itself to potentially take further steps in the coming days and perhaps over longer time horizons. These potential steps from China could include military provocations such as firing missiles in the Taiwan Strait or around Taiwan. Pelosi has not confirmed her plans to visit Taiwan. But regardless, Kirby says China should not respond in a way that can lead to unintended consequences. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Head of a Capitol Hill showdown over the Democrats' massive climate and health bill. Vice President Kamala Harris says the science is clear. Harris speaking today at the National Hurricane Center in Miami. When we think of the extreme weather that is impacting our country right now, um, we are looking at everything from floods to drought to wildfire. Um, And then, of course, there are hurricanes and and then extreme heat. Harris's remarks come as the White House is making more than a billion dollars available to states to address the flooding, fires, and extreme heat that have gotten worse due to climate change, which Harris called an immediate crisis. California's largest fire so far this year has claimed the lives of two people, and the blaze continues to burn out of control near the Oregon border. Only 0% contained at this point. KQED's Daphne Young has more. Two bodies were found inside a charred vehicle in a driveway of a residence in a remote community in Northern California. The Siskiyou County Sheriff says on Sunday the car was found by fire personnel in the line of fire, which is burning out of control in the Klamath National Forest. More than 2,000 residents are under evacuation orders, and Governor Gavin Newsom has called for a state of emergency for Siskiyou County due to the more than 55,000 acres that have burned since Friday. 
The fire is 0% contained and is now California's largest wildfire so far this year. Officials have not determined a cause. For NPR News, I'm Daphne Young in San Francisco. Another round of rain is hitting already flooded Kentucky mountain communities, exactly what they do not need. Even as the rain is resumed falling, more bodies are being found from the recent round of flash flooding there, with Governor Andy Beshear today upping the death toll to at least 35. Latest rains are hampering efforts to determine the status of many others still unaccounted for. Up to four more inches of rain fell in parts of Kentucky over the weekend. A down start to the week on Wall Street. The Dow fell 46 points today. The Nasdaq was down 21 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts lawmakers have approved a measure to help grow the state's legal cannabis industry and make it more equitable. The bill passed this morning as the legislature wrapped up its two-year formal session. The legislation lays the groundwork for legalized on-site consumption of cannabis products. It also would tighten oversight of host community agreements that marijuana businesses are required to have with municipalities. The bill heads to Governor Baker's desk for his signature. Baker previously has expressed support for the measure. In discussions about Boston in the late 1950s and the 1960s, people tend to mention Bill Russell. Russell was the center of all of it, and he was the one that was always the start of every conversation, whether you're talking about the Celtic dynasty or whether you're talking about all the complications of race in Boston or you're talking about the number of championships. That's ESPN senior writer and NPR Weekend Edition sports correspondent Howard Bryant speaking with WBUR's Radio Boston about the Boston Celtics legend. Bill Russell died yesterday at age 88. Bryant says the impact of Russell and others away from competition set the tone for future generations of black athletes. What Jackie Robinson did spurs on Bill Russell, which spurs on Muhammad Ali, and you feel like you have a responsibility to live up to that. On the court, Russell won an Olympic gold medal, 11 NBA championships, and five league MVPs. A Charlestown man will spend decades in prison for abducting and raping a woman. Today, a Boston judge sentenced Victor Pena to 29 to 39 years behind bars. Last week, a jury convicted him of kidnapping a woman after she left a bar in the city in 2019. He held her against her will for nearly three days in his apartment. State Attorney General and Democratic gubernatorial candidate Maura Healey is endorsing fellow Democrats Andrea Campbell to succeed her. Campbell is a former Boston City Councilor seeking the Democratic nomination for AG. The other Democratic contenders are Attorney Shannon Liss Reardon and former Assistant Attorney General Quentin Palfrey. Responding to today's announcement, Liss Reardon points out she has the endorsement of dozens of unions in Massachusetts and is now focused on earning the endorsement of the state's voters. Palfrey says he's endorsed by the Democratic Party convention and is not funded by special interest groups. Jay McMahon is the lone Republican in the race. In sports, in Houston tonight, the Red Sox play the Astros. It is 80 degrees in Boston. Some isolated sprinkles tonight with lows in the upper 60s. A mostly cloudy start tomorrow, then becoming partly sunny. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms, highs in the low 90s. WBUR supporters include Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Today, some rare good news out of Ukraine. With the honk of a tugboat, a ship full of corn left the port city of Odessa bound for Lebanon. The Rizoni is the first commercial vessel to leave the port since Russia invaded in February. The deal took weeks of negotiations and an agreement with the U.N., It's important because Ukraine is one of the world's biggest grain producers, providing food for countries around the world. Corinne Fleischer is the UN World Food Program's Regional Director for the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Europe. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello, Ari. Happy to be here. Last month, the UN World Food Program, your organization, warned that 50 million people across 45 countries are just a step away from famine. How much of a difference do you expect these exports from Ukraine to make in the countries where you work? This is a fantastic sign, an important signal to the markets that, you know, things may go back to normal, that the food that is so much needed uh, and that is stuck in Ukraine can come out. Um, And so we hope that the prices will go down, prices that have gone up tremendously, uh, you know, 70, 80 percent for wheat prices have gone up, you know, in, in like in May, June. They're now coming down. And we hope that with this, prices will further go down so people can afford to buy food again. Mm-hmm. Um, but how quickly this will happen, you know, we we can't tell. We're speaking to you now in Moldova, a country not far from where this ship left Ukraine. But I understand last week you were in Yemen, where a civil war has been going on since 2014. Back in April, I spoke with your colleague David Beasley, who is WFP's executive director, and he said this. We are already cutting dozens of millions of people down to half rations, like, for example, Yemen. Imagine telling your child, I can only feed you half of what you need this month. And so, Corinne Fleischer, tell us about what you saw in Yemen last week. How dire is the situation? It is absolutely dire. We are indeed, as David said, we're feeding far less than what the people require now. I was just in Hodeida And of course, we speak to people. I mean, I tell you now, people assault us at our distribution points. You know, we have Mm. 12,000 points in Yemen where we distribute food. And they assault us now and say, but how do you think, I met this woman, how do you think I can feed my three children while you gave me 80 kilos a month and now you give me 40 kilos a month? I simply can't survive feeding my Mm. children. That was a woman you met in the Yemeni city of Hodeida. What did you say yes. to her when somebody confronts you with that kind of desperation? How do you reply? It's hard. It's very hard uh, to answer. It's very hard to take this. When, you know, like, you know, we, we just heard in Syria, you know, a mother tells you, if I had known what's coming, I would not have had my children. I would have spared them this experience. When the father tells you, I only feed my children bread and tea now because I can't afford anything else. Or when the mother with a, with a baby tells you, I don't have formula. I give her um, water with sugar. So you, you, what can you say? It's heartbreaking. If it was you, how would you, you know, understand when somebody tells you, I'm really sorry, you know, the economic situation in the world is bad. Our donors don't have all the money. They're still very generous. But that, that doesn't sound with her. She needs the food to feed her children. If these exports do continue and do ramp up, how quickly do you think that food will get to those people you're talking about? 
Well, you see, this is why uh, the Middle East has been particularly impacted by the war in Ukraine and, and the wheat not moving out. It's because it takes about 10 days for a ship to come, you know, from the Black Sea to, let's say, Lebanon, while it takes about oh, up to two months if it has to come across the Atlantic or from Australia. So, uh, of course, you know, food will move into the region and into the world, um, you know, much more rapidly because governments had to rearrange their supply chains completely. And if they can now count again on, uh, on grain coming out of, of Ukraine, they can start to slowly readjust. But of course, that requires that there is a steady and regular flow coming out. Corinne Fleischer is the World Food Program's Regional Director for the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Europe. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you, Ari. A judge has sentenced Guy Reffitt, the first person convicted after a trial stemming from the January 6th Capitol riot, to seven and a quarter years in prison. It is the longest sentence to date related to the Capitol insurrection. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson was in the courtroom and joins us now. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so can you just remind us real quick, what were the most important facts that emerged at Reffitt's trial earlier this year? Okay, so unlike some of the other people at the Capitol that day, Guy Reffitt did not assault a police officer. He did not go inside the Capitol building, but he did bring a gun holstered on his hip. He waved other rioters up the steps of the building to overwhelm law enforcement there. And he basically confessed multiple times on video and on the phone and on Zoom. Once he returned home to Texas, Mm -hmm. he told other members of a militia group to delete their chat messages, and he threatened his kids not to turn him in. He told them traitors get shot. Right. I remember that detail. Now, prosecutors wanted a longer sentence, right? What did the judge say about that? Prosecutors actually asked for the first time in one of these January 6th cases for what you call a terrorism enhancement, a more punishment because this was domestic terrorism. The judge, Dabney Friedrich, said this was a complicated case, but she rejected that request for an enhancement. She said that would have created a sentencing disparity with other people convicted um, of crimes related to January 6th, and she didn't want to penalize Guy Reffitt for exercising his right to go to trial. Still, the judge said in some ways Guy Reffitt was in a class of his own. He didn't just want to stop the electoral count. He wanted to overthrow the government and take legislators like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi out of the building by force. The judge said Reffitt's threats to his own kids were very disturbing. And she also wondered why Reffitt uh, thus far had showed no remorse for his actions at the Capitol. Well, Reffitt did not testify at his trial, right? But I understand that you heard from him today at the very last minute? What happened? Yeah, at the very last minute, after the judge remarked several times about his lack of remorse, Reffitt got up to the podium, said he was anxious and afraid his words would come out wrong. He said he was very sorry because of what happened to his family and that he had acted like an idiot, that January 6th was kind of a big blur. He said, I'll have nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with militias or anything like that moving forward. And he said he wrote letters calling himself a martyr to January 6th and a patriot just to help his family raise some money. The judge did give him some credit for this last minute change of heart, but she said she'd throw the book at him if he violated the law again. Well, I know that Reffitt's family has been a major presence all through this courtroom drama. What did they have to say today? 
Yeah, remember his son Jackson turned his father into the FBI and mm. testified mm. against him at the trial. Yeah. Jackson was not there today. He wrote a letter to the judge saying he hopes his father gets mental health treatment in prison. Reffitt's daughter Peyton did show up. She told the judge Reffitt is not a threat to the family, but that he says a lot of things he doesn't mean. She said it wasn't her father's name on all the flags on January 6th. It was President Trump's. In other words, Guy Reffitt was not the leader that day. And outside the courthouse, after the day was over, the defendant's wife, Nicole, echoed her support. Here's what she said. We are patriots. Guy was a patriot that day. He will always be a patriot. Nicole Reffitt suggested her husband's apology inside the courtroom may have been half-hearted to get the judge to go light on him. All right. And real quick, Carrie, this is one of almost, what, 900 prosecutions stemming from the Capitol riot. What's coming next? Yeah, Reffitt's lawyer says they're going to appeal. Other defendants are scheduled for trial, including much bigger cases against the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys of seditious conspiracy allegations. That is Empire's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. Over the weekend, three different meteor showers put on a spectacle for anyone who was lucky enough to get a clear, dark night. I think I just saw one. I think I, there's there was a plane. 14-year-old no, no, Abby Bender and 15-year-old Lily Joffe were on vacation in coastal New Hampshire with their families and friends. When they saw a double shooting star. We heard from another family viewing party up the coast in Machias, Maine. This is Beth Wands with my seven-year-old daughter. Wesley. And five-year-old son. Cooper. Okay, everybody, lay back. We're on our trampoline in the backyard. Now, spotting a shooting star takes patience, and that left some time for brainstorming wishes. I think I'm going to come up with a wish to make on the one I see. Do you have to make it while it's still shooting or do you just, oh, I saw one. Did you? Yeah. Now, for the record, there are no rules on wishes. Young <gasps> other. Which is a good thing because Beth and her kids saw Not many of them. Did you see that? You gonna make a wish? I'm actually gonna wish for something. What did you wish for? For cuddles. Wishes do come true. Down in Florida, Roxanne Palmer and her partner Tim Hardin headed out to the Longleaf Flatwoods Reserve with their eight-month-old daughter Aurora in tow. So we've got camp chairs, we've got three layers of mosquito protection, (laughs) and it's magical. That one was a fireball. They too cast a wish. If we all had one wish, it would just be that, you know, our family is happy and healthy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the most common wish there is, but it's it's a good one. It's the best one. Oh, wow. Do you see that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you missed the show this weekend, there is still time to catch it, though the moon will be getting bigger and bigger over the next few weeks and might begin to upstage the shooting stars. When you wish upon a star. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on All Things Considered, the success so far of uh, Vision Zero plan, and also 
You'll get the story on how primary elections tomorrow could determine the fate of abortion rights in Kansas, Arizona, and Michigan. In business news, East Cambridge Savings Bank is expanding. Today it closed on the purchase of Woburn Bay's Patriot Community Bank. The deal boosts the total assets of East Cambridge Savings by about 12% and gives it an 11th branch location. It's the first branch in Woburn for East Cambridge Savings. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow finished the day down 46 points at 32,798. The Nasdaq closed down 21 points at 12,368. The S&P dropped 11 points to close at 4118. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 630. It's 519. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arcari. Sales tax-free event next week with new antique hand-knotted rugs. Boston, Salem, and Framingham. LandryandArkari.com. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It is 77 degrees in Boston. You might see some isolated sprinkles tonight. Lows will drop to the upper 60s. A mostly cloudy start tomorrow, then partly sunny. A chance of some showers, some isolated thunderstorms in the afternoon. Tomorrow's highs in the low 90s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. What do Joe DiMaggio, Tennessee Williams, and Bob Dylan have in common? Well, they each, at one time or another, lived in a hotel. At the middle of the 20th century, lots of Americans did this, from the rich and famous to those barely scraping by. Hotels were considered housing. But Residential hotels of all sorts have largely vanished. And in an article for Slate, Henry Grabar argues it's time for a comeback. He says extended-stay hotels could help alleviate some of today's biggest housing problems, from shortages to homelessness. And to understand how, you have to first start with just how many people hotels once served. For people who are at the very top, they offered this sort of all-included lifestyle where, you know, you could get room service, uh, someone would come clean, uh, make your bed every day. But further down the income ladder, they were also really important. You know, in in the early 20th century, families would live in hotels because they spared women, uh, usually the, the labor of furnishing a place, cleaning a place, decorating a place. And then uh, further down the income ladder still, for single people, the hotel was really the place that you went when you first arrived in a city and you would rent a room by the week or or by the month. And, And this was sort of your entry point into the city's housing system. Okay, so it used to be a thing where hotels were viewed as just sort of another type of housing for a lot of people, people all over the income spectrum. When and how did that begin to change? I think there's there's two things that happen. In the middle of the 20th century, to some extent, our need for residential hotels 
starts to disappear. The federal government subsidizes the development of suburbia. Homeownership becomes cheaper and more accessible than at any point in the country's history. New economic models compete with the hotel and offer the thing that the hotel had long offered. I'm talking about places like retirement homes, right? Like hotels were a big source of naturally occurring housing for the elderly. And, and retirement homes kind of fill that niche. Timeshares do a similar thing for vacation communities. So to some extent, the residential hotel declines because we don't need it anymore. But there's another part of this story, which is that there was a tremendous moral opposition to hotel life. Um, right. What did they fear about life in a hotel? Yeah. In the beginning, I think there was suspicion that hotels were places where women in particular would not focus on basically homemaking because a lot of those functions were taken care of by the hotel. Um, later in the 20th century, there was a more concerted opposition to the idea that residential hotels were places where drunks and hobos and prostitutes would live and cities actually undertook to basically get rid of residential hotels, and to a large extent, they were successful. Right. So as the housing that these hotels used to provide began to diminish, what did that mean for the groups of people who used to rely on this kind of housing? And, and I would like you to first focus on people who may have lived in a single-room occupancy building because they couldn't afford a typical apartment. Where did those people end up going? So at the bottom end of the residential hotel picture was always something called the single room occupancy. Those were places where people would rent rooms that maybe didn't, they certainly didn't come with their own kitchens. They often didn't come with their own bathrooms. We're talking really just the bare minimum. And then some of those facilities would be shared. And that was the place that people ended up when they had nowhere else to go. And when cities began to target SROs for demolition, beginning with urban renewal, and then later tried to zone them out of existence in the 60s and 70s, the people who lived in the SROs really had nowhere to go. And I think there's now a consensus that the abolition of SRO housing in cities is one of the reasons that we now suffer from such a serious homelessness crisis, because this bottom rung on the ladder of the housing system has been completely eliminated. But we should be clear, like many of these single room occupancy buildings, they were horrible places to live. Like it's not uncommon to hear stories about roaches or bed bugs, housing code violations, issues with crime. I mean, how nostalgic should we really be about the disappearance of SROs? No doubt. Yeah, I'm not trying to sugarcoat the living conditions in SROs. And I think to some extent what you're talking about is it's a long debate in the history of American housing reform between the desire to improve conditions through regulation, through inspection, and also the recognition that if you impose too many conditions on various housing types, you might end up eliminating them entirely. And I just want to put some numbers to the decline of the SRO. New York lost 100,000 SRO units in the 70s and 80s. Los Angeles and Seattle lost half their SROs. So however bad the conditions may have been, the question is, where did those people end up afterwards? Did we provide an alternative for them as we eliminated the SRO? And the answer is no, we didn't. It's as you say in your piece, I mean, there has been this constant struggle between maintaining some standard of habitability in housing but also not getting rid of too much supply because people need a place to live. Yeah, and I think with SROs, reformers are right to focus on 
dangerous, unsanitary conditions in SROs and ask, how can this be improved? What can we do to make sure that the people who wind up living in these places can live with dignity? But I do not think that should be confused with the idea that an SRO hotel is an uncivilized form of housing that ought to be eliminated. So beyond lower income people who would more heavily rely on SROs in the past, what other groups of people have been affected visibly now that long-term hotels aren't really available? I think the biggest result of our elimination of the residential hotel is the rise of Airbnb. Stays of longer than a month now make up a quarter of the company's bookings. It's the fastest growing line of business that the company has. So it's clear that the desire that Americans have to go someplace for weeks at a time never went away. And because we have lost the residential hotel, Airbnb is filling that niche. And that's very problematic because Airbnb takes units out of the long-term housing stock. And there are a lot of restrictions as a result of this sort of mid-century quest to abolish the residential hotel that prevent hotels from setting up shop in a lot of the neighborhoods where Airbnb is the most popular. So if you look at a place like New York City, for example, New York City has all but banned new hotel construction in most residential neighborhoods. You do say that you are seeing small signs that we could be returning to some of these long-term hotel models. What kind of signs are you seeing? Yeah, the hotel industry is definitely hot on the idea of extended stay hotels. There have been some big investments in this space in recent years. I read one report that suggests that one in 10 U.S. hotel rooms are now extended stay rooms. Mm. So that is becoming a bigger part of the market. Some of that is aimed at traveling workers. But some of it, I think, is also aimed at people who have fallen out of the housing market. And these extended stay rooms out in motels by the interstate make up basically the last step before homelessness, sort of fulfilling the same role that SROs once did. Although obviously in a location where it's much harder to see. That is Henry Grabar, a staff writer at Slate. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529 and coming up on All Things Considered, what hurricane-related flooding could mean for Washington, D.C. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. It is 77 degrees in Boston. Tonight, lows will drop to the upper 60s, a chance of some isolated sprinkles. Tomorrow, becoming partly sunny, a chance of some showers, a possibility of some thunderstorms, highs in the low 90s. This is WBUR. In many ways, this was the best kind of virus for us to have to deal with in terms of an outbreak. It seemed like a virus that we should be able to contain. But right now, we have almost 5,000 cases of monkeypox in this country, and pretty much every expert I talk to says that's probably a huge underestimate. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. An out-of-control wildfire continues to rage in Northern California, where two bodies were found yesterday inside a charred vehicle in a driveway. 
The McKinney Fire near the California-Oregon border has grown to more than 82 square miles with zero containment as the possibility of thunderstorms threatens to boost the danger that the fires will keep growing. Mike Lindberry with the McKinney Fire Department says nearly 6,000 people were forced to flee their homes. We have uh, evacuation orders in place and we have evacuation warnings in place, which is just a pre-alert for people who could be. Um, multi- multiple communities around this fire are threatened. The McKinney Fire is now the largest among several menacing thousands of homes in the western U.S. Firefighters are also struggling to contain wildfires in nearby Idaho and Montana. The federal government will help pay to make roads and trains more resilient to climate change. As NPR's Rebecca Hersher tells us, there are billions of dollars available to make it happen. One of the biggest threats posed by climate change is increased flood risk. Rising seas and heavy rain routinely lead to flooded roads and railroads. Now, the Department of Transportation says it will help foot the bill to protect against floods. The department announced $1.4 billion is available this year to make public transit, commuter trains, and streets more resilient. That includes raising electrical equipment and subway stations to keep the water out, expanding pipes under roads to keep water away from cars, and restoring wetlands to reduce road and rail flooding. Similar amounts of money will be available through 2026. That's because Congress allocated tens of billions of dollars for infrastructure last year. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Stocks finished slightly lower on Wall Street ahead of another busy week of corporate earnings. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It was a rush to the finish, and it went into overtime. The Massachusetts legislature's two-year session is over. Lawmakers blew past a midnight deadline and worked until around 10 this morning. They sent legislation to the governor to require insurance companies to cover annual mental health exams and to provide more help for marijuana businesses owned by people of color. They failed to act on a proposal to send $250 checks to middle-income residents to provide inflation relief. Lawmakers said they were not sure the state could afford those payments. That's because taxpayers are likely to get a separate tax rebate this year as a result of the state's large budget surplus. Gloucester firefighters are battling a brush fire with an estimated size of eight acres. It started just before noon today in the Sunset Hill area of Gloucester. Dave Salino is the chief forest fire warden with the state's Department of Conservation and Recreation. He says there was just a small brush fire in the same area yesterday, and the excessive dry conditions are not helping matters. Dense shrub layer that we see on these grounds, um, uh, you know, the site is open to the sunlight all the time. So not only is it drying from drought stress, it's drying from direct sunlight uh, added to that. And that means that those fuels become very, very what we call receptive to ignition. Salino says 98 percent of brush fires at this time of year are caused by humans. He warns campers to make sure campfires are out before leaving the campsite. A Jamaica plane man is being held without bail and is facing charges after police say he hit two police officers with his car. Boston police say the two officers were helping direct traffic around a parade yesterday in JP. Investigators say the officers told the suspect, Jamari Haygood, that the area was closed, but they say he drove through a wooden barrier and hit the two. Police say the officers were treated at the hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Today, Haygood pleaded not guilty to reckless operation and assault and battery. 
Because of the charges, the judge revoked his bail from another pending case. A series of shutdowns on part of the MBTA red line start tonight. To accommodate track upgrades, the T is suspending train service between JFK, UMass, and Braintree stations four nights a week, Monday through Thursday, for the next two weeks. That stretch will shut down on those nights at 9 p.m. until the end of service for the evening. Shuttle buses will be running. In sports, the Red Sox play the Astros in Houston tonight. It's 77 degrees in Boston, some isolated sprinkles tonight, lows in the upper 60s. Starting off cloudy tomorrow, becoming partly sunny, a chance of showers, a chance of some thunderstorms, and highs tomorrow in the low 90s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Ever since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, it is now up to states to decide whether people can access abortion. We're going to look now at three states where voters tomorrow will help shape the future of reproductive rights. Arizona, Kansas, and Michigan, where there was some news today. Zoe Clark of Michigan Radio is in Ann Arbor. And Zoe, I understand the courts got ahead of tomorrow's election. Tell us what happened today. Yeah. So earlier today, the Michigan Court of Appeals overturned a lower court decision regarding the state's abortion law. In Michigan, we have a 1931 law that criminalizes abortion. That law had been dormant under Roe v. Wade. Then the U.S. Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision. But a couple of months earlier, a lower court here had put an injunction on that 1931 law. So it wasn't in effect. That was until today. That's when the Court of Appeals said that that injunction doesn't apply to county prosecutors, so that county prosecutors could now enforce the 1931 abortion ban. Uh, It appears that that decision doesn't take effect, though, for 21 days. That would allow time for appeals to be filed. So right now, people in Michigan can still access abortion in the state. But it's a really confusing time, Ari, and some abortion providers aren't completely sure just about where things stand legally. Okay, so status quo at least for a few weeks. And meanwhile, tomorrow there is a primary in Michigan where Republican candidates who want to face Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer in November are on the ballot. Is there any daylight among the Republican candidates on the issue of abortion? Not really. All five candidates are anti-abortion rights. All five say they support the state's 1931 law that criminalizes abortion. That includes uh, Tudor Dixon. So she was just endorsed by former President Donald Trump on Friday night. She was also endorsed by Right to Life of Michigan, which is this really big get in Michigan Republican politics. Um, But we should also note in Michigan, there is a ballot campaign to get abortion rights enshrined into the state constitution. 
the group Reproductive Freedom for All, they turned in a record number of signatures last month. It was, in fact, the most in the history of Michigan. Um, If that question makes it onto the November ballot, voters will, of course, be voting for governor, but they would also then be voting on the future of abortion rights in the state. All right. Well, speaking of a state constitution, in Kansas, there is a constitutional amendment on the ballot tomorrow. Jim McLean of KCUR joins us from Topeka. And Jim, voters in your state are going to be the first in the country to decide on abortion since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Tell us about this proposed constitutional amendment. Well, that's right, Ari. In 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that abortion was a protected right under the state constitution. Uh, So now voters will decide whether to reverse that decision. Opponents of the proposed constitutional amendment have spent millions on ads warning that passage would clear the way for the state's Republican-controlled legislature to ban abortion. But amendment supporters have tried to calm those fears with ads like uh, this one. That's just a scare tactic. Here's what it does do. It lets us keep common-sense limits on abortion that we already agree on, like limiting extreme abortions in the third trimester and requires abortion clinics to meet safety standards that protect women. That's not a ban. It's just common sense. While it's true that those existing restrictions could be vulnerable if the amendment is defeated, there are also indications that abortion opponents, regardless of what they're saying now, will push for an outright ban if the amendment passes. Is it looking likely to pass? I mean, if so, what would happen to abortion rights in Kansas after that? Well, it's closer probably than many expected. Supporters pushed to get the amendment on the primary ballot instead of the November general election ballot, thinking that would improve their chances. Because in this red state, Ari, competitive Republican primaries turn out social conservatives in greater numbers. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade triggered a surge in voter registration, mainly it's thought among abortion rights advocates. And that's made it closer than expected. With a record turnout predicted, the most recent poll shows amendment supporters with about a 4% lead over amendment opponents with about 10% of voters still undecided. So if the amendment passes, the legislature will likely add or at least attempt to add new restrictions, which could include a ban. All right. Finally, let's turn to Arizona, where KJZZ's Catherine Davis-Young is following the election. And, And Katie, in your state, an old abortion law is on the books like the one in Michigan. How could tomorrow's election shape the future of abortion in Arizona? Right. We have a law dating back to the 1800s, decades before Arizona even became a state. And debate around that law has really moved one of our down-ballot races here into the spotlight. And that is the race for the state attorney general. And the reason is there's a lot of confusion right now about what is actually legal in Arizona without Roe. The pre-statehood law outlaws abortions with very few exceptions, and that's never been repealed. But we also have a number of more recent laws that restrict abortion in various other ways. So the question is, which law are providers supposed to follow now? Our current state attorney general, Republican Mark Brnovich, says the old ban from territorial days is enforceable. But Brnovich is at the end of his term, so both sides of the issue are now really focused on who will replace him and what the next AG's interpretation of Arizona's law will be. So Arizona's next attorney general is going to have a lot of power. What are the candidates saying about how they would enforce these conflicting abortion laws in the state? 
Well, on the Republican side, there are six candidates vying for a nomination in tomorrow's primary, and they've all indicated that they would plan to enforce state laws that restrict abortion. On the Democrat side, there's just one candidate running unopposed, and she has a very different interpretation of the law. She says basically any limits on abortion in Arizona are in violation of the state constitution, which guarantees an individual's right to privacy. So Claire Knipe is with the pro-choice political group called Arizona List, and they're one group that's now just become laser-focused on the AG race. They say getting Democrat Chris Mays elected is crucial for abortion rights. Even if we aren't able to flip the legislature, even if we don't get the governor's seats and couldn't veto bills, she would still have the ability to stop some of this prosecuting and be able to protect folks here in Arizona. Each of you is in a state where abortion may soon become illegal. And so in each of your states, if that happens, where might people seeking an abortion go? Zoe? Yeah, here in Michigan, actually, after the Dobbs decision, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer sent a letter to the federal government asking for protection for Michiganders who might travel across the international border to Canada to receive abortion services. And Jim, what about Kansas? Well, Ari, Kansans won't have many options. Colorado, Minnesota, and at least for now, New Mexico would be their most uh, practical options. And finally, Katie in Arizona? Well, our attorney general wants to enforce this old 1800s ban on most abortion in the state, and that's still hung up in courts for now. But the impact is most abortions have already stopped in Arizona. Providers don't want to take the risk while the law is unclear. So already there are reports of California clinics getting big influx of Arizona patients. That is KJZZ's Catherine Davis-Young, KCUR's Jim McLean, and Michigan Radio's Zoe Clark. Thanks to all three of you. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As climate change raises sea levels and energizes hurricanes, a big concern is flooding from storm surge. NPR has analyzed National Hurricane Center modeling for Miami, New York City, and Washington, D.C. And as WAMU's Jacob Fenston reports, D.C. has a bit more protection than other locations, due in part to the city's history as the nation's capital. The last time there was major storm surge flooding in Washington was during Hurricane Isabel back in 2003. 350,000 federal workers have been told to stay home. As the storm blew inland from the Atlantic, it pushed a bulge of water up the Potomac River, cresting in Washington at more than 11 feet above normal. Sea level on the Potomac has already risen about a foot due to climate change. It's expected to go up another three feet or more this century, meaning future storm surges could be that much higher. But much of the area that floods is parkland. It provides a kind of buffer to the rest of the city. It is a strange thing. It's where D.C.'s gotten lucky in its exposure to flooding risk. David Ramos teaches at American University and has studied and mapped Washington's historic waterways. We've got parks down here, and the parks can flood without people being at risk. I met Ramos at one of the places in the city most at risk to flooding, a low-lying peninsula at the confluence of the Potomac and Anacostia Rivers. In fact, this wasn't land at all back in the day. Let's go back to maybe 1840. And we're standing really right in the river. 
In the mid-1800s, D.C. had a big problem. After decades of cutting down forests and expanding the city, the rivers were silting up from all the runoff. And there was no sewage treatment at the time, so it's just a giant, smelly mud flat. The solution was to dredge the rivers. The federal government used the dredged-up muck to extend the shoreline, building new land. Other cities like New York built office towers and apartments on reclaimed land along the water, places that are now vulnerable to storm surge. In Washington, though, the federal government happened to be in a park-building craze at the time, part of the City Beautiful movement. The idea that cities can be more deliberately planned and that they can and should include large areas of parks. Today, some 90% of D.C.'s waterfront is owned by the government. It's home to some of the most famous monuments in the city, areas that can flood without displacing anyone. An NPR analysis of data from the National Hurricane Center projects that a Hurricane Isabel, if it happened in 2080, could impact more than 2,000 people in Washington, up from 600 today because of sea level rise. But that's compared to more than 400,000 people who'd be impacted in New York or Miami. There is pressure to develop along the waterfront, though. Nicholas Bernard is with D.C.'s Department of Energy and Environment. If you only cared about floodplain management and nothing else, you would probably say, let's not build in these areas. But he says you have to balance flood risk. Cities have lots of other priorities, too. Housing, great spaces. You know, people want to be on the water. And while D.C. may have lucked out when it comes to vulnerability to storm surge, another threat, interior flooding, is getting worse because of climate change. This is when a storm dumps lots of rain all at once, overwhelming drainage pipes. Stacy Underwood with the Army Corps of Engineers heads up a local flooding task force. D.C. did experience that interior flooding in 2018, 2019, 2020. So it really is becoming a, a frequent recurring event. In a worst-case scenario, interior flooding could happen at the same time as a storm surge. In fact, that's what officials were preparing for in 2003, why the entire city shut down ahead of the storm. Forecasters warned of up to 12 inches of rain. After Isabel passed through, less than an inch had fallen on the city. D.C. got lucky. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 5.48. And ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, you'll hear about fans paying tribute to Boston Celtics legend Bill Russell. You'll also get an update on the Texas governor's race, that and more, coming up on All Things Considered. Check out WBUR's recommendations for summer books with a New England twist. Sign up for our pop-up newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. It is 77 degrees in Boston, lows in the upper 60s overnight. You might see some sprinkles. A mostly cloudy start tomorrow, then becoming partly sunny. A chance of showers, a chance of some thunderstorms in the afternoon. Highs tomorrow in the low 90s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. You've seen the pharma ads saying depression may be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. But for years, doctors have known that's not entirely true. A big new study confirms that, and it's come as a shock to patients. We perhaps need to be more humble when we discuss these meds with our patients. We need to tell them, hey, we know the medications work, but we really don't have a clear idea why they work. 
That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Recent polls show the race between Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott and Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke is closer than ever before. Both candidates are ramping up their messaging, and Abbott is turning to immigration. The Texas newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran has the story. Throughout his tenure, Governor Greg Abbott has helped grow the economy and has protected gun rights. Now running for his third term, Abbott has taken unprecedented steps to curb unauthorized migration into Texas. For example, he's called for Texas state troopers to perform additional commercial vehicle inspections along the Texas-Mexico border. In Texas, we once again are going to try to step up and play a role by the state to address this catastrophe that President Biden is responsible for. That was Abbott speaking after 53 migrants died in a sweltering truck found in San Antonio last month. In April, he implemented a similar policy of inspecting commercial trucks crossing from Mexico. That cost the state millions of dollars and ended up clogging the international crossings for days before Abbott called the initiative off. Many, however, have said Abbott is just trying to score political points. What goes on at the border is heavily exaggerated. This is Eileen Teague, an assistant professor of international affairs at Texas A&M University. It's political theater. Teague says Abbott's policies might not be effective at all. She says history has shown that the over-policing at the border doesn't prevent migrants from crossing. There's so many historical examples on this. For example, between 1994 and 2000, right after the passage of NAFTA, the United States doubled the size of its border patrol and at the same time, illegal immigration between Mexico and the United States reached its apex. To put it in context, in June, the number of apprehensions at the border was much lower than the month before, but still very high compared to past years. In an election year, Abbott seems to know what could work for him and his supporters. More than half of Republican voters in Texas consider immigration or border security the number one issue facing the state. That's according to the Texas Politics Project. Joshua Blank is the group's research director. By keeping attention on immigration and border security, you have a campaign issue that puts the Democrats on the defensive but also highlight an issue that really activates and speaks to your base voters. Earlier this month, Abbott signed an executive order authorizing the Texas National Guard and the Department of Public Safety to apprehend migrants and return them to the ports of entry. Still, some hardline Republicans have criticized Abbott for stopping short of invoking a, quote, invasion under the U.S. Constitution. That's the same language used by a white man in 2019 before killing 23 people, most of them Hispanic, in El Paso. It's important to note that the enforcement of immigration laws is the responsibility of the federal government. Abbott is doing anything he can to win re-election against arguably the most well-known Democrat in Texas. Very few generations are afforded the opportunity to fight for the state of Texas when everything and I mean everything that we care about is on the line. On immigration, guns, abortion, and just about every other issue, Beto O'Rourke and Abbott have polar opposite views. And O'Rourke is trying to get the votes of Republicans and independents who are turned off by Abbott's rhetoric. O'Rourke is seeing some gains. The latest statewide polls show him trailing Abbott by just five points. 
O'Rourke also outraced Abbott by $4 million in the last fundraising period. However, Abbott has more money than O'Rourke. Now, Abbott is not the first Republican governor, nor the last to push for ultra-conservative immigration policies. In 1994, California passed a ballot proposal that targeted people who were undocumented, preventing them from using public services, including schools. Former Governor Pete Wilson was the face of the proposal. And I'm working to deny state services to illegal immigrants. Enough is enough. In 2010, former Arizona Governor Jan Brewer signed a Senate bill that required state law enforcement agents to verify the immigration status of all arrested individuals. Though many people disagree, I firmly believe it represents what's best for Arizona. But a look at Wilson and Brewer's legacy might give Abbott an idea of what could happen to him in the long run. Wilson tried to run for president and his campaign lasted just one month. Meanwhile, since she left office, Brewer has not been a major player in Republican politics. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. A statue in Boston honoring basketball legend Bill Russell is drawing fans from near and far. The former Boston Celtics center and later coach died yesterday at the age of 88. NPR's Tovia Smith spoke with some fans paying tribute to Russell today. The statue of Bill Russell, who stood at 6 foot 10, is even larger than life, just as fans remember him, like Chris Hepting visiting from North Carolina. A legend, one of the top ones ever, so... Did a lot for basketball, did a lot outside of basketball. The statue was put up in 2013, well over a half a century after Russell was drafted by the Celtics and decades after he became celebrated as a basketball Hall of Famer, five-time league MVP and 11-time NBA champion. As some fans called him the real GOAT, or greatest of all time, taking a little jab at the football GOAT Tom Brady, formerly a New England Patriot and now with Tampa Bay, who's got just seven rings to Russell's 11. But it's Russell's efforts off the court that count as much to Boston fans like Kwame Mark Freeman. He hopes Russell will continue to inspire more professional athletes, as Freeman puts it, to do your job while still keeping your eye on the prize. This is an experiment. This country's an experiment. And there's a responsibility that you have, I have, to enhance and improve that experiment. It's far from being over. Russell never stopped using his voice or his platform after former President Donald Trump called for the firing of NFL players who were taking a knee during the national anthem to protest racial injustice. Russell tweeted a picture of himself taking a knee while holding the Presidential Medal of Freedom he'd been awarded by former President Obama. He said he wanted players to know he supported them, a gesture Russell himself could have only wished for playing in Boston when it was what he called a flea market of racism and when he was enduring insults and even attacks. 63-year-old Bostonian Deborah Corngay says it was especially impressive that Russell continued even then to speak out. You know, black people always had a tough time, but he chose to say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do, and he did it. Russell was seen by some as somewhat aloof in his playing days, but at the same time the epitome of a leader and team player. 32-year-old Yutang Eve, visiting from Central Africa, says just as Russell was willing to put his convictions ahead of his career, he also put his team ahead of himself. He was a big man inside, but he was a playing as a, as a playmaker. He used to, like, you know, uh, rebound the ball and pass. And his mindset on the game, he was like sharing the ball. As you say, sharing is caring, you know. 
For Russell, it seemed, it was just another instance of the right thing to do at whatever cost. As he told reporters back in 1964, when asked if he feared for his life, he said, I'd rather die for something than live for nothing. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 77 degrees in Boston, coming up on 6 o'clock, as All Things Considered continues. Tonight, lows will drop to the upper 60s, a few sprinkles around. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start, then partly sunny. A chance of some showers tomorrow, a possibility of some thunderstorms in a few places in the afternoon. Tomorrow's highs in the low 90s. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Parts of eastern Kentucky have been devastated by deadly flooding. Many residents say they're just relieved to be alive. My sister-in-law lost her home, and my niece lost hers. Other than that, we're all safe and everything. It is Monday, August 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Ahead, the president of the National Resources Defense Council discusses the climate investments and actions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Hoboken's director of transportation and parking explains the success so far of Vision Zero. And fans remember Nichelle Nichols, who made history for her role on Star Trek. On Wall Street, stocks close down today. You'll get a full range of business news on Marketplace at 630 it's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Historic flooding in eastern Kentucky has brought 37 confirmed deaths and major destruction of infrastructure, businesses, and housing there. As Stu Johnson from member station WEKU reports, the state's climatologist says advance warning for flooding is very difficult. Kentucky climatologist Megan Shargorodsky says the Climate Prediction Center's anticipated above-normal rainfall in late July. But while climate specialists can see how global systems are going to move, it's still hard to pin down where. It's really hard to be able to take that information and say, we need to evacuate eastern Kentucky because there's going to be heavy rainfall at some point in July. 
or later this week or even tomorrow. Shargorodsky says there's a significant emotional and economic burden that goes with that kind of notice. And it's not as clear-cut as, for instance, warning about an approaching hurricane. For NPR News, I'm Stu Johnson in Lexington, Kentucky. The White House is confirming President Biden will speak later this evening about what it's calling a successful operation against a significant al-Qaeda target in Afghanistan. Wire services are reporting the target was Ayman al-Zawahiri, who had a key role in planning the September 11th attacks. Reuters is quoting two U.S. officials, saying the Central Intelligence Agency carried out a drone strike in Afghanistan over the weekend. The officials speaking on condition of anonymity, saying the strike took place in Kabul Sunday. There are no details on other possible casualties. The White House is accusing China of using irresponsible rhetoric in recent days on a potential visit to Taiwan by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Beijing is once again warning its military will not sit idly by if Pelosi visits the self-governing island. National Security Council coordinator John Kirby is warning Beijing against using Pelosi's potential trip as a pretext to increase further military aggression in or around the Taiwan Strait. Put simply, there is no reason for Beijing to turn a potential visit consistent with long-standing U.S. policy into some sort of crisis or conflict. China's foreign ministry says such a visit by Pelosi would be considered a gross interference in Beijing's internal affairs, warning of very serious developments and consequences. Pelosi is currently leading a congressional delegation to Asia, which includes stops in Malaysia, South Korea and Japan. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is signing into law a major piece of legislation aimed at boosting the computer chip sector. Bipartisan measure taking 18 months to reach the president's desk. Proponents say the billions of dollars in incentives for companies to produce computer chips in the U.S. will help cut prices, create factory jobs, and defend the U.S. from unfair competition. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The two-year formal session of the Massachusetts State Legislature is over. Lawmakers worked until the 10 a.m. hour this morning, even though the session was supposed to end at midnight last night. During the all-night talks, the legislature approved a bill to allow sports gambling in Massachusetts. Wagers on Massachusetts college teams would be prohibited unless the teams are part of a national tournament. The bill now heads to Governor Baker's desk. The effort to reform the way Massachusetts recoups health care costs associated with Medicaid has hit a roadblock. The Mass Health Program files claims against the estates of members who have died if those estates are being handled in probate court. The state legislature adjourned today without acting on a bill that would limit Mass Health to recovering only the costs of long-term care. A separate proposal to do the same thing stalled when lawmakers chose not to act on an economic development bill. That means proposed reforms likely will be delayed. Under legislative rules, any policy matters considered between now and the next session in January can be sidetracked by the objection of just one lawmaker. Workers at a Starbucks in Worcester are the latest to go on strike indefinitely. Today's strike is the second one in the state at the coffee shop chain. The work stoppage coincides with one-day pickets that Starbucks workers held today at three other Massachusetts stores. WBUR's Josie Guarino says workers who have voted to unionize are complaining of unfair labor practices. 
Starbucks workers call it a day of collective action. This group from the Brookline Starbucks picketed outside Boston's National Labor Relations Board, while baristas in Worcester picketed outside a store on East Central Street. Bailey Fulton has been with Starbucks for 16 years. She says the majority of workers at her store decided to unionize, then had their hours cut. I'm available maybe 35 hours. Other partners are available 40 hours. We're getting 16 hours a week, 22 hours a week. We can't pay our rent on hours like that. Starbucks released a statement saying it respects its workers' right to engage in any legally protected activity or protest without retaliation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Celtics legend Bill Russell sits at the top of Boston's Mount Rushmore. That is the assessment of Boston Globe sports columnist Dan Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy tells WBUR's Radio Boston that Russell was the ultimate team player for the Celtics in the 1950s and 60s. They taught you how to win, subjugating your ego, how to put team above self. Bill Russell was the embodiment of this because he didn't need the ball. He didn't care about touches, wasn't a scoring champion. He was a winner. He would do what it took to win. Russell won 11 NBA championships with the Celtics, was the league's most valuable player five times, and won an Olympic gold medal with Team USA Basketball. He's enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. Russell died yesterday at the age of 88. Tonight, the Red Sox are in Houston to play the Astros. In the forecast, some isolated sprinkles tonight, lows in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, becoming partly sunny, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, highs in the low 90s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. This week, Senate Democrats could pass the most ambitious climate legislation in a generation. It's all within a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And it's arrived as the country is a map of deadly floods, fires and heat advisories. This package includes cleanup incentives for power plants, expansion of clean energy, and investments in electric vehicles and climate-friendly farming practices. It also has some major concessions to the fossil fuel industry. Those were brokered by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, whose vote is key to passing the bill. So, are the climate provisions enough to balance out the expansion of drilling and pipelines? Manish Bapna is president and CEO of the National Resources Defense Council. Welcome to All Things Considered. Great to be here, Ari. This bill is less ambitious than your organization had been pushing for. So, how are you feeling about it? Well, it is less ambitious than we hoped, but it contains by far the strongest climate action ever taken in American history, full stop. It will meet a 40% reduction in emissions in 2030, and that's a very significant step towards meeting President Biden's 50 to 52% goal that he set forth about a year and a half ago. And when you weigh that against the fossil fuel provisions that, for example, require the federal government to sell leases for drilling on federal lands and waters, how do they compare? If you look at the positive provisions in the bill, whether it is around clean electricity, electric vehicles, decarbonizing heavy industry, they're at least 10 to 1 times greater than the emissions that would be produced from oil and gas leasing or some of the public support for dirty energy or biofuels. 
I know that there are many different provisions in this bill, but when you look at the different clean energy incentives and programs, what do you think will make the biggest single impact? There are three or four that really stand out. Probably the most important are the programs that will help households and businesses install new clean electricity like wind and solar. They'll provide tax credits that lower the cost of those projects. Second, I think we see a lot of support for electric vehicles that will help people buy new and used plug-in or fuel cell electric vehicles. We also see significant support for heavy industry and manufacturing, helping cement, steel, aluminum implement more transformational technologies to decarbonize those plants. Finally, we actually see quite a bit of money for agriculture and forestry conservation that will help store carbon in our lands and in our forests. As you say, a lot of this comes in the form of tax credits or incentives, which are not mandates, not requirements. What are the chances that companies don't take advantage of these incentives, that individuals don't claim these tax credits and the goal is not met? These are very robust, long-term tax credits where industry has been strongly advocating for their inclusion in such a bill. So we saw this whirlwind change from a deal that wasn't going to happen to a deal that was going to happen in no small part because industry stepped up about the importance of these tax credits. So I think there's very strong confidence that these tax credits will be used at scale. Okay, so you've talked about the goal of reducing carbon emissions 40% compared to 2005 levels by the end of this decade. How does this package fit into the larger goal of keeping global temperatures from increasing more than two degrees Celsius, beyond which we're told absolute cataclysms would occur? Well, the United States is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient for solving the global climate problem. The United States needs to do its fair share, which is at least a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. This bill will take the United States from 30% without the bill, 30% less emissions in 2030, to 40% below. The United States still needs to take additional actions to get to 50%. But with the credible pathway, the United States can lean in and help ensure that other major emitters, China, the European Union, India, do their fair share. But without this bill, the U.S. doesn't have the credibility to do so. And that's why this bill is so critical to unlocking greater global ambition on climate. I know you've been working on this for a very long time. Can you just describe what it was like for you personally to go from a couple weeks ago reporting that the bill was dead, that the deal wasn't going anywhere, to this moment where it looks like Congress might pass and the president might sign the most ambitious climate legislation in a generation? About a week ago, I was very, very angry. I felt we let a really important opportunity slip through the cracks. But if we can get this enacted, it is going to reinvigorate jobs, growth, innovation, reducing the deficit, fighting inflation, improving energy security in a way that will actually significantly reduce emissions. It's not done by any stretch of the imagination, but we're in a very different place today than we were five, six days ago. You're still not counting chickens, huh? Not until the bill is signed. Manish Bapna is president and CEO of the National Resources Defense Council. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ari. To Whitesburg, Kentucky now, where people are still reeling from the devastating flash floods that have killed at least 35 people in the state. 
Joining me now is Colin Foltz. He is the owner of Kentucky Mist Distillery in Whitesburg. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being with us. Can I just first ask you, how are you holding up? Well, it's pretty devastating the first day when you walk and and see that uh, the distillery was flooded. You know, that was pretty bad. Yeah. And then and then you just kind of kick into uh, cleaning and getting it back to where it needs to be. Well, I know on Friday you told us that there was just like mud everywhere in the distillery. How are things looking right now? So since Friday, we've worked through the weekend and everything. And, you know, like the first we're all cleaning and getting the mud out is the is the most important. And mm-hmm. then we'll just go from there. But it will probably be another week of doing that. And we've not even started on the basement yet. Oh, God. What does the basement look like at this point? Oh, man, it just looks it's just devastating. There's probably two inches of mud in the top part of the distillery. And there's probably more like eight inches of mud in the uh, in the basement. What about power? Do you have problems with electricity at this point? Okay, so the, the distillery is in Whitesburg, so the town has power, and I live about 10 minutes outside of town, and we only got power back last night. But a lot of places still don't have power, and, and nobody really has water yet. In Whitesburg, we have a little bit of water, but we're running real short. So are you mainly drinking out of bottles at this point? Anything that we drink comes from a bottle, yep. Okay. But is there enough water to clean the mud out of your distillery? Right now, what we have, we have enough to get to get it out because we actually have a well that we can use from. I see. So we're, we're actually using out of that for the moment. And what about internet access? No internet. No internet at all. Okay. No internet. So we don't know what's happened, if anybody even knows what happened here. Or So, like, my daughter lives about three hours away. So my whole family, we can't call and text each other, but we can all reach her. So the whole family texts and checks in with her. Oh. Because it don't go, it won't go straight from place to place here, you know. I see your daughter is now the hub for the family. Yeah, yeah, she is. And how is the rest of your family doing? Well, uh, my sister-in-law lost her home, and uh, oh. my niece uh, lost hers. But, you know, other than that, we're all safe and everything. Where are your sister-in-law and your niece staying then at the moment? Uh, with family. Okay. So everybody just has to stay. Like, uh, we have a friend coming to her house. We have, like, a pool house, and they'll come there and stay tonight. And then... Uh, people just taking in everybody that has lost everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you gotten any assistance from the state or federal government at this point? We've not saw FEMA at all. Really? Not saw FEMA at all. The distillery is right next door to the health department for Kentucky, and Kentucky has sent a catastrophic response team, and they have a trailer set up here, and they're working at the health department to try to get that reestablished so that they'll have what they need there. But as far as everything else, like people's out cleaning off their roads with their own personal equipment and stuff, trying so we can get out to, to get to where we need. And then last night, it flooded again on top of what we already had. So some of it had been cleaned up, and then it washed right back out again yesterday. 
How long do you think it'll be before you can get your distillery back in shape to open? I would hope within a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah, I would think. With I, I hope to have it back running within two weeks would be my goal. Well, I wish you the best of luck, Colin. Colin Fultz is the owner of Kentucky Mist Distillery in Whitesburg, Kentucky. I hope you and your family stay very safe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is the U.S. entering a recession? Well, that's a question economists can debate, but for the time being, most people on Wikipedia can't. You see, last week, a bunch of news came in about GDP going down and interest rates going up, which led to a spike in a different kind of interest. Lots of people were suddenly interested in editing the Wikipedia page on recessions. Experienced editors pressed pause on the free-for-all. They said newer users weren't citing sources or coming to consensus on a separate discussion page. They also said political bias was creeping in. Now, the White House does not use Wikipedia to determine whether the economy is in recession. As far as we know, that declaration comes from a, quote, official recession scorekeeper in the National Bureau of Economic Research. And the White House believes when you combine inflation with other data like consumer spending and job growth, we are not in a recession, at least not just yet. If you disagree, well, the freeze on the Wikipedia page is scheduled to lift Wednesday. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 619. And coming up on All Things Considered, how Hoboken, New Jersey has succeeded where other places have failed in trying to prevent traffic fatalities. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow finished the day down 46 points at 32,798. The Nasdaq closed down 21 points at 12,368. The S&P dropped 11 points to close at 4118. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 630, including a look at the increasing popularity of strip malls. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. And Gloucester Stage with Grand Horizons. Life turns upside down in this family stage comedy by Bess Wool, July 29th to August 21st. Tickets at gloucesterstage.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It's 75 degrees in Boston. Tonight, the lows will drop to the upper 60s with a few sprinkles here and there. A mostly cloudy start tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday with a chance of showers and a possibility of some isolated thunderstorms in the afternoon. Tuesday's highs in the low 90s. Looking ahead to Wednesday, not bad sunshine. Highs in the mid 80s. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What if you could get traffic fatalities down to zero? Well, the city of Hoboken, New Jersey, just across the river from New York City, seems to have done it. Nobody there has died from a collision with a car in four years. Ryan Sharp is here to explain how they made that happen. He is Hoboken Director of Transportation and Parking. Welcome to All Things Considered. 
Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, almost 43,000 people in the U.S. died in motor vehicle traffic crashes last year. That is the highest number since 2005. So while numbers all over the country were going up, how did Hoboken get the number to zero? Well, that's a great question. Hoboken has been playing a long game when it comes to traffic safety for a number of years, uh, dating back before COVID, and playing the long game through uh, incremental changes and improvements over a series of years. So you talk about incremental changes and improvements. Like if you and I were going for a walk through downtown Hoboken, what are some of the specific things we would see that have made a difference? Well, uh, a lot of the things that Hoboken has been doing to improve traffic safety are low cost, they're quick implementation, but they're also high impact. So we know through our our crash data that about 88% of crashes happen at intersections. So we have focused on trying to reduce conflicts at, at our intersections, especially on our high crash corridors. So things like trying to improve sight lines at corners, by doing what we call daylighting. So that can be installing something as as simple as as what we call a vertical delineator post or a flexible bollard. These posts get installed within 25 feet of crosswalks and they physically restrict cars from parking right up against a crosswalk. So it's not a blind corner. If you're going to take a turn, somebody's going to see you. If you're going to cross the street, you can spot the cars that are coming. That's correct. It's a very simple, cost-effective thing you can do, um, but it has a big impact. Uh, One thing that you won't see is something called a leading pedestrian interval. And basically what that means is uh, we've programmed our traffic signals to give pedestrians a few second a head start when they get into the crosswalk during their pedestrian phase without having to worry about turning vehicles. Oh yeah, I've seen that here in DC too. The walk light turns on before the green light goes. Your plan seems to de-emphasize car ownership and create space for pedestrians and cyclists. How often do you hear from drivers who feel like you're squeezing them out and what do you tell them? Well, the goal of the Vision Zero program is to focus on safety for all modes of transportation. Uh, What we know, though, through our crash data is that pedestrians and cyclists in in particular are the most vulnerable users of the streets in Hoboken. And that's pretty much the same for every city in the country. And so culturally, people elevate pedestrian safety in Hoboken at the top of the hierarchy. So even if you commute to work uh, by car, at some point, you're going to be a pedestrian in Hoboken. So we try to not pit any one mode against each other as much as possible. There are a lot of cities that have implemented Vision Zero programs to reduce traffic fatalities. But in places like Washington, D.C., deaths have actually increased since that goal was announced. What makes Hoboken different? Well, it's hard to speculate what's working well or not working well in other cities. But in Hoboken, uh, an incremental approach over several years that includes Uh, more than just engineering, but also education and uh, a focus on changing the culture. The simple improvements like daylighting or leading pedestrian intervals or adding curb extensions, these things are still in place and they've been having a positive impact and people have gotten used to seeing these things in town and they ask for more. So it's continuing to build off its own success. And, you know, frankly, we've been fortunate so far not to have a setback. But that can happen at any time, right? We're well aware of that. It's happened in other cities. So we're continuing to push ahead with new initiatives again and again to try to continue to keep that progress in place.
That is Ryan Sharp, Hoboken's Director of Transportation and Parking. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Star Trek fans are mourning the death of Nichelle Nichols. She played Lieutenant Uhura on TV and films, and in the 1960s, she was one of the first black women starring on a TV show. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has this remembrance of a groundbreaking role model. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Nichelle Nichols boldly went where few black actresses on TV had gone before when she played Lieutenant Nayota Uhura, Chief Communications Officer of the Starship USS Enterprise. Strong interference on subspace, Captain. Planet must be a natural radio source. Uhura traveled through the 23rd century communicating with aliens and exploring new planets, new civilizations. As Earthlings were struggling with racial issues in 1968, Uhura shared one of the first on-screen interracial kisses with Captain James T. Kirk. I am not afraid. In a Star Trek special on the Smithsonian Channel in 2016, Nichols said that kissing scene shouldn't have been shocking. It's just two people like my grandmother and grandfather. Grandpa was white and grandma was black. (laughs) Nichols' death has stirred reaction from Hollywood to the White House. Actor William Shatner, who played Star Trek's Captain Kirk, praised his co-star as a beautiful woman who played an admirable character that did so much for redefining social issues. George Takei, who played helmsman Hikaru Sulu on the series, mourned his dear friend. We lived long and prospered together, he tweeted. President Joe Biden praised Nichols as a trailblazer who, quote, redefined what is possible for black Americans and women. Nichols sometimes sang on Star Trek. In fact, she began her career in Chicago, singing and dancing on stage. She modeled for Ebony magazine and went on tour as a singer for the Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton bands. To me, the highlight of my life was to star on Broadway. Nichols told NPR in 2011 that during the first season of Star Trek, she wanted to quit to pursue her dreams on Broadway. She handed her resignation letter to Gene Roddenberry, the show's creator. He was very upset about it, and he said, take the weekend and think about what I am trying to achieve here, Nichelle. You are an integral part and very important to it. That weekend, she met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a fan. She told him she was leaving the show. I think I said something like, Dr. King, I wish I could be out there marching with you. He said, no, no, no. No, you don't understand. We don't need you to march. You are marching. You are reflecting what we are fighting for. King convinced her to stay on board Star Trek, and she did through the original 1960s series and six subsequent films. Eventually, Lieutenant Uhura became Starship Commander Uhura. Roger, Old City Station at 2200 hours. All is well. In real life, Nichols helped convince women and people of color to become astronauts. Here's her 1977 NASA recruitment video. Now there's a 20th century enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. After Nichols' death, the space program sent out a communication. She inspired generations, NASA tweeted, to reach for the stars. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Red's Best with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.